Reimagining Black Relations, a podcast on solutions to issues relating to the Black race. Welcome to Reimagining Black Relations. If you've ever had any dealings with Blacks, then you have a Black matter, so this is for you. Together, let's begin to shape and reimagine Black relations. Whether you're Black, white, or brown, trust me, you will learn, gain, and execute just by listening to this podcast. Come along. I'm your host, Dr. Francesca Fajemi. Today, our guest is Alison Baird James. She's the ABC at UCLA Corporate Financial Services. Alison is actually very special to me because the journey about this podcast started from her when she asked me to speak at UCLA CFS about the issue relating to Blacks. It was out of the blue, and I agree. I think she told me about three days to the presentation dates. I didn't even think about it until the night before. And then I put down a few bullets, basically just to say we need to continue to be tolerant and embrace diversity as we've always done. My goal was to avoid agitation about the subject and just move on. So I thought to myself, I think I'm good to go with uh, the few bullet points. So my son came down to where I was, and I told him in passing that, hey, by the way, I'll be speaking at UCLA tomorrow about diversity. He didn't even let me finish when he said, Mom, you better not give them the corporate line. If they need to hear the same message, they wouldn't be asking you. I tried pushing back. I said, you know, I've been in corporate for many decades. I know everything that goes on. I know how things work. Um, I'm your mother. He would not have it. He wrote a very strongly worded letter to his team. He's a manager at his workplace. He informed them that racism would not be tolerated. Uh, everybody must be treated with respect. Anyway, he said, I have to say the truth. Then I said, but I can lose my position. I can lose my status. Um, it may have significant financial impact. And he said, so be it. It will be a very small price to pay. So here I am, Alison. You are the vessel. And I'm very grateful. Oh, you're welcome, Francesca. You've done such a wonderful job. I mean, what you said to corporate financial services that day was awesome and really moved people. So a little humbling if all you did was put down a few bullets. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So pleased to be part of your journey. Thank you again, Alison. I want to welcome you to Reimagining Black Relations podcast. I would like to start with a little bit of introduction, Alison. Do you mind introducing yourself to our listeners and perhaps include any social interests or anything you feel comfortable sharing? I'm Alison Barrett-James, and I work at UCLA. You know, really love the industry, love what it stands for. It's been really important to me. We're living in Los Angeles. We came down for this position so that we were sort of a transplant, but have really enjoyed our adventures here and, you know, raising our family here. I'm a mom. I'm an executive, a wife, a busy, busy person, typically. <laughs> Most definitely. I can attest to that. She's indeed a very busy lady. Alison, where were you born and where did you grow up? So I'm a native of San Jose, California. I was born there in the 60s and grew up there uh, my whole life. We moved, but only within about a eight block radius ever. So always went to the same schools. You know, the kids I went to uh, kindergarten with, I graduated from high school with. So I was always in that area and really enjoyed that part of San Jose and the experiences I had there. 
So I went to Dover Elementary. It's now been changed to a private school. It's no longer. Um, went to Blackford Junior High and then to Del Mar High School, uh, close to the Campbell area of, of San Jose for people that know know much about San Jose, um, which was a nice, a nice middle-class suburb kind of an area. Beautiful, beautiful. Alison, did your parents introduce you to any discussion about race or racial differences? For me, all I need to do is just remind my children that they're Black and that's it. I don't have to say more than that. Did your parents tell you anything? Well, again, this was the 60s and my folks were very conservative, so um, not into sort of the 60s movements um, at all. That was sort of a younger age person than my folks were. So we were taught to trust the police. If we ever had any problems, we could go to the police. It was at the time when you had the neighborhood watch program. So they would have um, little signs in the windows um, of the homes as we would walk to school because we always walked to school. We were never driven. And you knew that if you ever had any issue, you could go to any of the homes that had the neighborhood watch signs and you could go ahead and um, get help there. So so we were always taught that authority and, and trusting was good. We did live in an all-white neighborhood. I do recall when my parents, my mother in particular, was, um, said that there was an African-American family moving in to the neighborhood, and that was a really big deal. So lots and lots of chit-chat on the phone about that kind of stuff. And I remember overhearing it and not really understanding at all what was what was really going on, because it didn't. It just didn't seem to me to be a big deal, but um, it certainly was to my mother, mom, and her friends. Very white neighborhood. Interesting. Alison, I know you're married and you have children. Please tell the listeners about your family structure. I went to Chico State, and while I was there, met a guy who was a forest firefighter, and but he's African-American, and we fell in love and got married um, up at Chico and eventually had three children. So we have three boys. Um, they're now, what are they, 26, 24, and 21. And so they're, they're all grown um, to some degree, as much as parents think their kids are grown. I've been raising African-American boys for 26 years now. That is just amazing, Alison. Did you feel prepared for that role? I don't know that I even thought that much about it. So, so to back up a little bit, you know, San Jose is a very, very diverse area. Um, it's a uh, a large percentage of Hispanics. When I was in high school, we had the Hmong people were coming over from Vietnam and stuff and, and coming over to the West Coast. Um, there was African-Americans, you know, it was, it was very mixed. And so even though I lived in a very white neighborhood, the neighborhood that fed the high school had a lot of different mixed races. So um, so I was used to that. I didn't really ever think that much about it. You know, I don't know whether I ever thought about whether I was prepared to have have African-American boys. I was prepared to have kids and we were going to have, you know, we were excited about that. And I just didn't really ever process on that. Didn't ever strike me that I was having black kids. I was just having my kids. That's amazing. You weren't thinking about the race of the kids you're going to be having. Even though you're married to an African-American, it, it didn't cross your mind that you're going to be raising black kids or mixed uh, race kids, right? Yeah, pretty much. You know, And I think that as time has gone on, there's more and more mixed race kids that are, are in the schools and everything else. So it didn't what my one son calls people, peach people and brown people. And there's a lot more brown people. It's, it's fantastic. But I guess I never really 
have categorized people so much by race, although, you know, and that's not to say that race isn't important because I don't want to say that, you know, my African-American husband isn't African-American or I don't see him that way, but um, that's just one aspect of him. And there's just so much more depth to him than that. And so um, I just didn't, I didn't think about it. Yeah. I wish the world can see people that way, but uh, unfortunately that's not the case. So let's talk about your children. Uh, you're white, your husband is black. How do your children identify themselves racially? That's, it's funny, you know, I think today they see themselves as African-American men, um, but I do think as they were growing up, it was it was very interesting. So, you know, we lived closer to my family than we lived to my husband's family. So they were around my family more. And I think that, and they were the first grandkids in my family. So, um, so it was a big deal to my mom. <laughs> she, she'd been waiting for grandkids for a long time. So they were just head of heels for these kids. So um, I think that my oldest son, as I remember when he was six, I think it was, he was very much identifying as Caucasian. And he would come and say, you know, but mom, I'm white. And I said, well, yes, you're half white and you're half black. You know, it sort of bothered me. So we ended up getting a bunch of books about famous African-Americans and and some of the things they had done. You know, he had a lot of exposure, of course, to famous um, Caucasian people. But I wanted to make sure he had exposure on the other side. And I think that's the first time I sort of decided that I had a responsibility to raise him as understanding both halves of him, not just understanding the Caucasian half. So... um, so I started trying to study up a little bit and make sure that I could, could better make sure he understood both sides of him. I think my middle son um, always, when he was younger, tended to identify as African-American, um, you know, more than, than white, which was always interesting. He was much more curious about it. Um, the older one was curious about a lot of other things, but not, not so much race. He grew up, his youngest years were in Hayward, which was a... There was a significant black population there, but um, at any rate, he tended to to identify as as Caucasian. And then my youngest son, you know, by the time we had him, we were in Cupertino. I remember in kindergarten as they were coloring, he would have, you know, use the peach color for those peach people and the brown color for the brown people. And he didn't, and he he classified people that way. And one day he came to me and said, you know, mom, I, I wish I was a peach person. <laughs> I said, oh, no, you don't want to do that. You just burn, peel, and, you know, and you can be out in the sun and your skin is beautiful. So it was interesting to me how different the three of them were and how they approached this differently. Um, and as I said, they've all ended up in their, in their 20s as, as being proud African-American men. But, um, but the beginning was sort of, they all approached it differently and, and their journey was different. Wow. I would never have guessed, but I can see that now. Um, so what was your first encounter with racism? You know, to some degree, you know, our courtship, Dennis and mine, was in Chico. And um, there was, when I went to school there, you, you know, close to a college and stuff, it can be fairly liberal and, and a lot more accepting. Um, but I think away from the school, you're more in a farming town. Um, and there, I think that... Um, there really wasn't um, mixed race couples, you know, at that time. I'm sure there is now, but um, but at the time, that was very unusual in sort of the um, the more um, professional life of, of Chico and 
and Oroville and Paradise and those areas. I mean, it's beautiful up there and wonderful areas, but they um, they were just not used to it so much. And so, so there you would hear racist remarks sometimes. I mean, I remember one gentleman who worked again, and I'm in a was in a CPA firm where fairly conservative. And and one gentleman made a big deal to make sure he told me the first time he met me that he um, he liked all races and he was not prejudiced. And and I found that people that that seek me out and tell me that immediately tend to be a little racist and a little prejudiced. But I don't think he felt that this was necessarily an appropriate um, relationship. They all liked Dennis so much that it wasn't quite such a big deal. So. Um, you know, so we would go, like if we would go to the grocery store, he would start out in the fruit section and he'd meet all these people he knew. And I would leave him there and I would shop the entire store and then I'd get in line and finally go collect him out of the fruit section because he's still there talking to everybody. So he had a way of navigating through the race issues at Chico that was, um, that it, that's unique to him, but it worked really well for him too. Let me ask you another question, Allison. What was your parents' reaction when you introduced Dennis? Well, that one was interesting. My family was was not happy about this at all. So, um, and I remember my mom talking to me, and I said, "You know, what did you think? You raised me in San Jose, of all places, and did you think I was going to come home with a Caucasian, we were raised Methodist guy?" And she said, "Well, yes." <laughs> People in Chico loved Dennis and loved us that she basically said, okay, I can see this working here in Chico. As long as you never leave Chico and you never have kids, you're fine. <laughs> and I thought, wow. Okay. Um, so, you know, and I think um, they always sort of watched to see how things went until that first grandchild was born. And, um, you know, my mom always wanted sons and she had me and my sister. So here comes the first grandchild. He's a grandson. And Dennis was the most wonderful man because they brought him they brought them their first grandson. Um, that was the end of it. Wow, that must have taken a big toll on you, uh, you and Dennis. Because I, I remember when I was getting married, uh, you want everyone to be happy for you, to rejoice with you. And here you are. Uh, the challenge was even your parents. Uh, that must be very difficult. I think, you know, we were really close to Dennis's mom. We actually, our first home we bought was right down the street from her. So, um, and Dennis's family is so accepting and so loving. And that, and we were in Chico and the family was in Chico. And, you know, my family were 200 miles away in San Jose. So to some degree, we could focus there and, and we focused on our friends. Um, and that I called it sort of being able to pick your family. I mean, you don't get to pick your family typically, but um, when you're more estranged from your own family, you get to pick who you're going to be around and who your influences are. Um, and we, you know, and I was fairly independent. Now, my husband drives me crazy. Well, I drive him crazy because I like to every once in a while watch those uh, wedding shows and stuff because I like to watch the mom helping the daughter, you know, with all the dress and all that kind of stuff because I never had that. You know, I did that all myself with my girlfriends. Um, and on one hand, I got exactly what I wanted because um, you watch some of those poor girls, you know, have overbearing parents um, that and moms that want certain things. But I also miss some of that, too. And um, very much looking forward to when my kids get married, hoping they marry someone who's going to need some help and wants to have a mother-in-law along for the journey because um, 
you know, I missed that on the other side. I, I'm looking forward to that on this side. You know, I think everyone has challenges in their life. This just happened to be mine. I picked it. It's not that, you know, I didn't have to. Um, but, um, you know, I, Dennis and I were, were made for each other and it was the right thing for us. So, um, so it's always worked out and, and you know, will continue to, I'm sure. Wow, what a wonderful relationship. And you're blessed with three lovely children. And I also say kudos to your in-laws for doing the right thing. Uh, it's, uh, it's a blessing indeed. Okay, Alison, as a wife to a black man and a mother to mixed children and immediate relatives that are pure white and black, what are your personal struggles, challenges, and even fear about the future pertaining to the issue of black race? Well, I think, I just think it's unfortunate that people paint African Americans in such a, a big swath. And, and I feel this way about all races or, I mean, religious sides or, or where people are from or whatever. I think that, um, that, you know, when you cut yourself off from a, a race of people or a, a particular religion, any group of people and paint them all in one one brush you um limit some of the really wonderful people you can know in the world um and i think that that's that's sad um because i just i i think that's unfortunate but i also as a mom you feel some fear for for your kids and for your african-american relatives because you know that it's harder and um and they they're going to experience things that i've never experienced and never will experience as a white woman um, and I just feel like if there's some way that I can reach out to African Americans and make sure that they get an opportunity as best as I can provide. And, you know, I'm just, I'm just one person, but there's, but as I've grown in my career, I have, um, the ability to give other people opportunities. And so if I can make sure that, that I can reach out to African Americans, knowing that it's harder for them to have gotten to wherever they are in their careers, give them give them some um, opportunities. I think that's that's great. And if I can um, have other people get to know them, so that they are knowing them as people as opposed to just a race, I think that that's something I can do. Um, you know, in in my own little way. I, I don't know. I'm never going to be able to change things greatly, but if I can do something and make sure at least people get opportunities with me, then that's something that's important to me. And, and I've been doing that, you know, since I've been in a management role, um, even before I got to UCLA, it was important. Yes, indeed, Alison, you've been a role model. And to our listeners, uh, I just want you to know she's very bold and she takes bold moves. It is a privilege to hear her perspective on this subject. Uh, moving on, Alison. In your opinion, what is the popular perception of Black people? Well, I, if you're asking what the negative perception is, um, you know, I because um, I know many people that think highly of African Americans, but I also know people who who don't, and you hear you hear those things. I think it gets sensationalized in the news a lot of times, but of um, that. African Americans are less educated or more likely to um, to steal or more likely to be on welfare. I think you know you hear that. I'm I don't necessarily believe it. Obviously, again, I can't say it enough. Anytime you paint a race, you end up painting too broad a brush. I mean, there are 
And I, I look at Caucasians and I say, well, there's Caucasians that steal, there's Caucasians that, that sell drugs, there's Caucasians that um, aren't as educated, and, and there's the opposite. And I think the same thing happens with African-Americans, Chinese and Indian, and you know, you name it, there's uh, what I would call good people and, and others that are more challenged either socioeconomically or something and, and just are not really doing what the mainstream feels is appropriate in society. So, so you, you hear those things. It, it hurts a bit when your relatives or your, your husband or your children are painted with that brush immediately um, and they have to sort of crawl out of that um, to prove themselves before they're um, accepted. As opposed to, I think sometimes Caucasians are assumed to be be educated and good and everything else until they do something bad, and then they sort of drop down. You know, it's uh, but it's it's a lot harder to crawl out than it is to drop down. So I think that that's that's a shame because I think people miss meeting some really terrific people. And I'm thinking about your three boys. Have they ever been targeted or challenged due to their race? Oh, yeah. All three of them have been stopped by the police at one time or another. But two of them that I'm aware of have been taken out of the car at gunpoint and put on the ground um, because they resembled someone that might have done something wrong. Or they're in our neighborhood, uh, which tends to be more affluent and is white. Um, but, you know, we're middle class. We're not in, a, we're not in Beverly Hills or <laughs> any of the really fancy places. Um, but there's been suspicion on whether they ought to be in the neighborhood or not. And it's sad when you hear those things and you just think, gosh, they start down a rung. And and again, they have to move up so much. And I think it's hard enough being a young person, a young male um, these days, and to have that on top of everything else. It's just, um, you know, you just wish that it was easier for your kids. But I think understanding their circumstances and then moving through that is, is all you can do is be is help them with that and, and help them understand that um, there are these people in the world and it's, and it's tougher. Um, but they also need to behave a little differently than, than what a Caucasian kid has to behave like. And they've been learning that lesson though since they were very young, you know, junior high. Um, oh, what did they do? These Junior high kids, they they went and they decided to pay, play a prank on on one of the other kids in the student store. So they they went in there and they stole some things from the student store, and it was you know four white kids and my my son, and you know they took pencils and that kind of stuff and hit them and that kind of thing, you know, just teasing this kid, and um, which was not a nice thing to do, but that's what they did. My son, I guess, took a dollar and hit it instead of a pencil. And so he ended up um, suspended for, I don't know, a few days or something like that. The other kids were all giving talkings to and then they just went back to class. And so, and he felt um, that that was because of his race. And I said, well, you know, when you are the only black kid in the entire school, you might want to just think about it a little bit more. Even as I would tell people, we would go and we'd be someplace and, and they would be someone who went to the same school at the same time as my son. And I'd say, oh, maybe, you know, my son. And they're like, oh, there's 1,500 kids here. There's no way we know him. And I'm like, oh, it's, you know, this is my son's name. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, we know him. <laughs> when you're, you're one of, when you're one in a group of many, everyone's going to know 
for you. And every time you do something wrong, you're going to get you're going to get caught. As opposed to when you're in a group of all homogeneous people, they learned it growing up, and I don't think that they think that much about it. Yep, no hiding place for goldfishes. Uh, they definitely are goldfishes. Alison, are there any personal struggles you're going through right now regarding this issue? I think, you know, some of my family in Chico have gone through some really difficult times. And um, we have a, um, and this is, I guess, leads me to why I feel like I need to talk out. Because, you know, I, I was listening to some of the Black Lives Matter things. And they said, basically, you either talk, talk about Black Lives Matter and you're part of the solution or you're part of the problem. And I think that's what was my turning point of saying, okay, I don't want to be part of the problem, so therefore I do need to speak up. And I do have something to say. I, you know, I fully respect that I have not gone through the kind of racism that African Americans do. So, you know, my story is not nearly as important as a lot of those, but um, but I think you need to speak up. My husband's cousin had a, a son, I think he was in his early 20s. Um, he suffered from mental health issues his whole life, which was really sad. And, um, and at different times, the family had to call health professionals to come get him because he would have some kind of an episode. And, and unfortunately, in Chico, he ended up having an episode where, where he was, you know, there was, there was some real concern about him. And so Dennis's cousin was in a bedroom away from him, trying to stay away from him and um, called the mental health people to come help and, and they sent the police instead. And unfortunately, a series of events happened and he was shot and killed in, in the apartment there where they were. Um, that was really, it's been really sad and really difficult for the family. There's been a lot of protesting done around that case, um, the Desmond Phillips case, um, for people that want to know and look it up. Um, and you know, we hope that we get some justice for that. I think that the police came well prepared to handle someone with mental illness, even though they were told very clearly that this is what was going on in the house. And we just don't think they had the training, um, which doesn't excuse what happened. Just because you don't have training doesn't mean you shoot someone. That's really sad. And uh, and for for a family to have that, and then uh, Dennis's brother, you know, our nephew, um, he is also African-American, obviously, uh, a pretty prominent student at Chico State, um, doing extremely well, was getting ready to have a senior year. He had an incident where he was at a casino, one of the Indian casinos up there, because he liked to do that on his spare time once in a while. And for whatever reason, after he left the casino, ended up running into some problems. Not sure what they were, because we're still at a mystery on this, and was murdered um, in the Oroville area. Um, and they found his body and they burned in the car that he owned. That has never been solved. And, and it's, it's just hard. Promising had this great, you know, great future laid out. Um, African American kid, male, and we need more of those. And so to lose someone that long, it's, it's just sad. And to not know what happened and not, not know what's going on makes it very difficult. And I just reflect that, you know, Dennis's family is, is large, has a lot of brothers and sisters, but not so large that you would expect to have two of these incidences with people, with young, young males that are in their 20s in that family. 
you know, it just worries me because um, I can feel for what these other families feel. It's, um, the frustration is very difficult, and and you try to find, you know, what's what's the right outpouring? Is it is it talking on things like this? Is it protesting in Sacramento? You know, what what is the right way to deal with this? And I think we all deal with it differently, but it's um, but the family's struggling, and they've been struggling for quite a couple of years now on this stuff because it's. Um, it's been a couple of years since the shooting. So um, this one is on. Wow. That must have been a very difficult one for the family. I will keep them in my prayers as well. But um, they, will, they will get a closure on the case. Um, so what specific changes would you like to see on a personal level? I guess... Personally, I would just like people to see people for who they are. For me, race is just one aspect of some person, and there's there's so much more depth to a person. And I I honestly believe that being in diverse groups is, is um, much more interesting than being in a whole group of, for me, Caucasians. Um, you know, it's um, the lack of diversity there. I think is it's just not as interesting. You can have deeper conversations, you can have fuller conversations, you can understand all different sides when you when you're around people that were raised differently than you, had different experiences. And and again, it doesn't all have to be race that has to be different. I think social economic differences, differences in religion, differences in just the way people think, um, countries that they grew up in. I think when you bring people that are diverse together, to me that's just a much more interesting group of people to be with. I think you're able to solve problems. I think you're much more effective in business when you do that. Um, I think businesses that if you know me hiring a whole bunch of me's, I don't I don't need a bunch of little me's to tell me what I think because um, then we'll all just agree with each other as opposed to if I pull people together that are very different, we might need some work becoming a team because that's that's a little tougher for us. I want a team that's gonna come know sometimes and and work through things so that we come up with really good solutions. So so I honestly think that there's just a strength in diversity um, that that you lose when you when you decide that all you want to do is be around um, people like you. And I think that on a bigger scale when you look at, at people in general, um, as as I've said before, there are really bad white people and and there's really good white people and there's um, really bad African Americans and really good African Americans, and you know, and you can apply that to any race or any kind of group. And so this this idea that we're going to take a group of people and say because they look like this, therefore they are this. So I would I would hope that people would look look at people a little more deeply than just just what they look like at their face value. Absolutely, there's no art to find the mind's construction in the face. So that's that's a given for sure. Okay, imagine your sons on the job. What kind of changes would you like to see in the workplaces for them? I would like to see my kids getting opportunities based on their actions and what they do. And so if they're performing well, I'd like them to see, to see them get opportunity. If someone else is performing well, I'd like to see that person have the opportunity. I don't, I, I just would hope that that they would look at at my kids and everyone else's kids that are working there as as just humans that are are looking to move you know to to learn and to grow and that kind of thing and and 
give everyone equal opportunities to do that. That's great. I have this question for you, and I'm toying on how to phrase it. Um, many of the white people I've spoken to claim not to know this color, which invariably might mean they are not racist. Although I do see color when I see a white person versus a black person, the interaction is different based on just the connection through uh, racial identities. But let's agree that many races makes up the minority group in the U.S. So let's say among the, let's use the whites for an example. Let's say racist among whites are the minority. Most whites are not racist. Let's, let's uh, take the argument from that perspective. So when it comes to the issue of white privilege, though, though it's a different story. This is a privilege that's conferred upon white people by the society. Whether you like it or not, it's not something you earned. You just get it just by the color of your skin. And you will notice that many of the placards carried during the protest uh, for Black Lives Matter included equalities, justices, and equities. So for this reason, I want to discuss the issue of inequality and injustices from the viewpoint of white privilege. How can we introduce equality, justice, equities, among all humans without depriving others. Um, do you think you'll need to give up something to make it work? If so, how do you feel about that thought? Some may think that. I, you know, um, I think you know, there certainly is a white privilege. I would like to think that we could get to a society where people treat people well regardless of, of what they look like. So it's not that I'm going to be treated less well but that an African-American will be treated as well as me. I guess when, when I think about it, it almost looks like in society that um, people decide where they rank in society and they always want to have someone that ranks lower than them. And I, and I don't quite understand why that's so important because I think if you've got self-image of your own self and that you're doing what you think is right and you've done what, what you can do, um, I don't know why you have to have someone that ranks lower than you. Um, but it seems like we always have this pecking order because if, because I'm only good if I've got someone beneath me that I can say, well, at least I'm not them. And, um, and I'd like, you know, my utopian society that people, um, don't really care if they've got someone beneath them. They just are focused on themselves. And if they want to improve their, the way that they are, that they do that. Now, I, I understand that there are people that are, um, born of, of great privilege, and, and those of us who are not are probably not going to get to those kinds of levels. We could focus on ourselves and not be so worried about putting another group down. It would be, that's sort of my utopia. Now, again, I, I know that it's, it's not really probably possible, but I, I don't know. I haven't processed it as losing something. I've processed it more as, as African-Americans gaining something. I think you brought some interesting perspectives, Alison. So in your home, you're white, your husband is black, and the kids are mixed. It didn't sound like racism or superiority of one versus the other is an issue. Um, the second point, which I think is actually very critical that you raise, is that equality and justice for all is not about white people being treated less fairly. It's about all people being treated fairly, right? 
um, if we treat each other as human beings and, you know, assume the best from people until they prove otherwise. Um, and some do, but, but most people, you know, are hardworking. They're trying to have the best lives they can. They're trying to do the right thing for their kids. Um, they want to have a certain amount of success. Well, however they define success. I mean, some people define it more in financial terms or in work terms, others in family terms, you know, and, and you give up on the other side of what you define, you know. Um, but I think people in general want the same thing. Right, right. Um, you also mentioned that everyone needs to improve themselves. Um, I think this might be one of the answers to my next question. Imagine yourself on a global platform and you need to speak to a predominantly non-Black audience or 100% white audience. What would you say to them? Can you address them directly? I think the first thing I would feel very weird being in a room with all white people. <laughs> I think the first thing that I do is, is I notice that everyone's Caucasian. <laughs> and so I would feel the desire at least to introduce them to someone who wasn't white um, and and show them how wonderful that person is. Um, you know, whether it's inviting you to speak with me or what it is, but, you know, it's really opening their eyes that there's um, more out there. I think introducing, and this is sort of how my husband deals with racism too, introducing them to people that are different than them and showing them how wonderful they are. Um, and not spending a lot of time on the negative and stuff, but just really helping them get to know someone that's that looks different from them, but actually inside is, is quite similar. I think that's that's sort of how how we've dealt with um, with racism, but then also that's how I'd like to deal with with a large group of white people because I think that's so much better than just preaching to them. I'm not sure a white person telling a group of white people that black people are great is really going to help. And I think um, for me personally, the more interesting has been or uncomfortable has been when I've been asked to speak or when I've been in a situation where I've gone to church with my husband or something, and I am the only white person. I don't it, for, I would challenge any white person to have that experience once because I think it um, opens your eyes substantially because because um, you really know. I mean, it's one thing if you're if you're in a group and you're the oddball out, but you're the oddball out because you play a music instrument and they don't, or that kind of stuff. Because, or you have the the bachelor's degree and everyone else has master's degrees or something. Because you can't just look out over the audience and say, "Oh, I'm different," um, because you don't really know unless you start talking to people. But when you're in a group where you're the only Caucasian, you really know. And I think about that because, you know, my husband is frequently in a group where he's the only African American. And um, and the uh, finesse that he deals with that and the grace he deals with that, I find remarkable. Um, and I have a real respect for it. But I just never even thought about it really that much until I ended up in a similar situation. Now, he's grown up in that kind of situation. So he's, he's more used to it. And I had just never experienced it. So, um, an interesting, interesting way to um, have some understanding about people who are different from you on why, why sometimes this is really difficult for them. So, Alison, your message to this imaginary 100% white audience is that 
they should get to know more Black people. They're not what they think. Uh, there's a lot of depth and meaning to such relationships, and it will just be great uh, to, to get to know them and understand them and learn more from them. So on that note, I would like to use this opportunity to invite you to come to Nigeria. I think you guys will love it. We've been talking about going, you know, Dennis has now done his Ancestry.com stuff and um, has started looking into that and has found that he's from the Cameroon area. And so, you know, we've thought about, you know, going to Africa and spending some time um, just sort of seeing that well, continent. We've got some researchers there from UCLA that I've, you know, again, done some um, some work to try to help UCLA be um, able to conduct the kind of research they want to there, um, which I believe is helping the um, the economy there and uh, and the people there. Um, those are the kinds of projects I like to get involved in that um, are sort of my pet projects because they're they're a way to um, feel like I'm contributing somewhat to to some of the African way of life and, and trying to improve it. Oh, that would be great, Alison. I can't wait. So finally, would you be comfortable sharing your thoughts within your circle of influence? I think that um, I'm getting more comfortable. I think that, um, you know, for a long time as, as a leader or a manager, I felt like I needed to be very careful about what I said. And so if I just pretended like there was no difference between people, then I wouldn't um, offend anyone or cause there to be any problems. But I think I'm finding now that I can have a voice. Um, and um, and I think I've done some of that with my organization so far and, and hope to do some more with, with it. Um, I'd like to find a way to have a bigger voice to help um, move the conversation forward. I just, I never thought about being someone who was an influencer until very recently when in COVID, we started having these um, chats with the organization on a regular basis and, and started to realize that um, that people sort of wanted to hear what I had to say. I never knew anyone would want to hear what I had to say. <laughs> um, so it's just um, amazing to me that, that and, and what we've done so far has been amazing and, and feedback's been amazing and I hope we can keep it up. Um, as if we can influence our own little corner of the world, you know, and if we can have a lot of people doing that, um, maybe they can see that it, it's not, it's not such, you know, division between one group and another group. There's actually a lot of people that are, that are bringing the groups together and, and working together. And there are a few of these, but, but there's more together, I think, than there is the division. And we need more of that. We need more positive stories about about people working in diverse groups as opposed to, you know, this group is, is causing problems for this other group and there's all this tension. Yeah, actually, to my knowledge, Alison was the first to address her organization in UCLA. And that was the event I was invited to um, to speak at. And that was my very first time speaking on the subject of race ever. Um, that conversation, um, Alison spoke there, I did, and another gentleman did as well. It was such a very special moment. There was a special bond uh, in that organization since that day. People felt more connected. Who would have imagined the issue of race will make us more connected? I think there's something there for our nation uh, to learn. 
Um, Alison, you've led the charge, and I want to congratulate you on this very bold step. You are truly the epitome of what we expect from institutions such as UCLA. And I want to thank you for sharing your heart. I hope there will be more opportunities in the future for you to come back and share more of the good stuff uh, with us. And I'm praying the change will happen in our lifetime. Thank you so much, Alison. Well, thank you, Francesca. I think that, um, you know, I'm so proud if, if that was the thing that opened your heart to start doing these things, that's, that means that that discussion was worth it. And so, so if I can have my little bit of influence and then you can have your influence on your group, there is hope and, and a lot of hope that we're going to end up in a better place than we were. And, and that then we can pass this on to our kids and know that they're going to take it even better. Um, but, but we did our part. And, um, and we didn't just stand by because we were too shy or too, too worried about what others were going to think or too, too whatever too it is. Um, but we actually um, stood up, took some action, and were able to move this, this forward. Because um, it, it needs to resolve. We can't, you know, hush... If we were this place in the 60s and now, you know, 60 years later, 50 years later, we're still at this kind of a place. I would hate to say 50 years from now we're still, I mean, if we could make some progress, even if it's baby steps, just to start, um, that would be tremendous. So um, so thank you for doing this. Thanks for um, for really having this sit on your heart and, and speak to you so that you decided that you wanted to do something. And, um, you know, together, you and I partnering together with, with a whole lot of other like-minded people, we're going to make some things happen in there is hope. So I appreciate that. I'm sure you all agree with me that Alison shared from our hearts. It's not an easy task to speak about your family openly like that. I truly appreciate our commitment to moving the course forward. So what are the critical points? The first one is get to know Black people. The perception is not reality. It will give you the opportunity to see people for who they really are. Secondly, she also said we need more Black men. So please don't target them for evil or categorize them based on their looks. Thirdly, she suggested that everyone should continue to improve themselves. With that, there should be no concern about losing current privileges. And last but not the least, it's not about whites being treated less well. It's about blacks being treated equally well. Alison, thank you for your contribution to the history we're making. I'm excited to be part of it. God bless you and your family. To all our listeners, may God bless you as well. And may the Lord bless the United States of America. See you next time. <laughs>